the Union troops told them how to do it. And I'm like, seriously? Um, and no, in fact, enslaved people have long familiarity with the legal system and real intimate familiarity with uh, legal principles. This is the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Uh, this is Eric Loomis, and I'm very happy here uh, today to be talking to Laura Edwards, uh, who is the class of 1921 bicentennial professor in the history of American law and liberty at Princeton University. Um, Laura is the author of a number of books going back uh, the last uh, couple of decades. Um, among them, I'm not going to name them all, but uh, they include um, uh, Gendered Strife and Confusion, The Political Culture of Reconstruction in 1997, uh, and The People and Their Peace, Legal Culture and the Transformation of Inequality in the Post-Revolutionary South. Um, and uh, we're here today uh, to talk about her book from last year, published in uh, 2022, only the clothes on her back, textiles, law, and commerce in the 19th century United States. Uh, Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. Would you start by just describing this, uh, what I have to say is uh, uh, an incredibly fascinating book? Thank you. Sure. Um, so can I, I would start out by explaining kind of the genesis of this, because I got completely fascinated by a series of cases that I was puzzled by when I was doing the people in their piece, which was, you know, more than 15 years ago. And I was particularly taken with one case where it involved John Marshall, who is not the John Marshall. He is actually a farmer in North Carolina um, in the 1840s, and his dress was stolen. And I'm like, that's interesting. John Marshall has a dress. Okay. Um, but then you open up the case, like the, the outside of the folded case, you see John Marshall, what is stolen, you know, the basics of the case. And then you open up that paper, um, which is folded and you open it up. And on the inside, you realize, oh, it's not his dress at all. Oh, big surprise there. It's actually his wife's dress. And the dilemma of the court is how do you handle the theft of the wife's dress because of coverture, which means that, you know, that eliminates her property rights and then her ability to also prosecute cases in her own name. And so on the outside, you have coverture, which then has to attribute the dress to John Marshall. But on the inside, they treat it as her dress. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I don't quite understand this. And then all of a sudden, once I realized what was going on, I started seeing other cases like this, where enslaved people um, were uh, actually contesting property that was textiles and clothing related. And I started realizing that, oh, actually, there seems to be this real recognition that clothing belongs to the person who's wearing it. And once you say that, it's like, well, yeah, duh, because... I mean, who else would it belong to? But this is such a strong kind of understanding that legally claims to clothing are enforceable by people who have no property rights. So married women, enslaved people, and then people who are on the economic margins who wouldn't be able to claim much of anything else can make really strong claims to clothing. And then they use those kinds of legal claims to spread it out to mean that anything that's kind of related to clothing, like, you know, 
yards and yards of fabric that they're weaving or thread that they're spinning or an array of cloth that they're peddling out of their houses and homes, that can be theirs too. And then once I got there, you start seeing this broad part of the economic world of the late 18th, early 19th century that involves people without property rights who are trading in textiles and textile-related goods. And they're not just trading to have them, they're using these goods as currency, as the basis of capital and credit. And they're doing this because of law, because they can legally claim these goods and they're legally secure that way. So it opens up this whole new economic world, but this whole new legal world as well, where people who we imagine to be outside the law are actually claiming textiles, textile related goods in local courts and doing this very assertively throughout the late 18th, early 19th century. Um, so I was then, the book pieces together this world and goes to the legal elements of this, but also the economic implications, and then traces its decline over time as these legal principles become harder to enforce in the mid 19th century. And then by the late 19th century, they sort of move out of law and into the realm of culture. So now we think, oh yes, if you have on the clothes, they're probably yours, but that isn't necessarily the basis of a larger kind of set of legal principles that is enforceable anymore. I mean, there's so much to, to break down in this. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'll kind of say this to you before, but uh, it, it, I would say this, like up front, it's kind of rare, you know, as a mid-career historian, I read a lot. It, it's rare at this point in my career to be like, wow, you know, this book really changed my entire way of thinking about something in U.S. history. And, and your book really did. Um, and so, I'll, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack here. But I guess the first is that, you know, the, the the claims that you very effectively make about how people who have no other economic or legal advantages, slaves, married women, are able to not only assert uh, legal claims based around textiles, but actually win those claims. No, I was really surprised. And to give you an example, I mean, one of the first questions people ask is like, why did legal officials do this? I mean, they may have to do this. And I was a little like confused myself. Um, and to give you an example, like in Charleston, South Carolina, this woman runs into a magistrate's you know, his house, because he doesn't have an office necessarily. So she runs and finds the magistrate and yells and screaming about how a bandana was stolen from her. And the bandana was valued at one cent. And it's like, oh, what magistrate in his right mind? I mean, you would show her the door, right? No, he fills out all the paperwork and drills down on the bandana, discovers that it's not a real bandana. It's a knockoff bandana. So it's only worth half a cent, actually. But he nonetheless fills out all this paperwork and then prosecutes his case. Um, and there's any number of cases, I mean, hundreds, thousands, no doubt, cases like this um, across up and down the eastern seaboard, right? So um, officials are taking these cases, but they're doing this, I think, because these legal principles are so ingrained that they can't really ignore them. Um, so they have angry people coming in all the time, asserting them, claiming them. And in the assertion and the claims, people make those principles real. So they're taking principles that have deep roots in not just Anglo-American law, but in continental law and actually beyond and other continents as well, because um, they're deeply rooted in a textile trade that goes back centuries. 
So ordinary people are taking these principles and then demanding that they be enforced. And local officials don't really have a choice. And they follow the basic logic of these principles. And oftentimes, people who you would not imagine to be successful or would be successful are very successful in making these claims as a result. And I think it speaks to the power of these principles. I think it also speaks to the way law works in this period. We're accustomed to thinking of top-down with states passing statutes, with appellate courts then you know, dictating to people what the law is. And these are legal principles that moved across national borders that have deep roots in trade and practice. And we're not accustomed to seeing those and following those in the history. But people at the time were very, very attentive to them, clearly, because they were following them even in circumstances where you would think that they would be more liable to dismiss them. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess, you know, some of what you're saying is, I think, says a lot to me about maybe why this did blow my mind so much because these are just ideas that we don't you know often engage with and um at least at least i i don't um and so i guess i guess there's a big broader question here um which is how you know to the extent that you can really even answer this uh, uh maybe you can but how are these kind of like popular cultures of the law created say in the in the 18th century or, or even earlier No, it's a great question. And it also sort of gets to the methodology of this book, um, which, you know, if you're a legal historian, what you usually do is like you go to Westlaw, you plug in, you know, the state and the body of sources of legal cases that you want to look at, and then you plop in a keyword and boom, up they come. Um, or else, you know, before Westlaw and LexisNexis, you would go to a law library and then look up statutes, appellate decisions, and that's where you think the law comes from. Or you'd read a treatise, right, for sort of more general principles. Um, and if you look in those kinds of sources, you don't see a lot about the legal principles that are associated with textiles. And instead, you kind of have to piece them together through practice. So the bulk of my research was going to like the lowest level of the courts, the magistrates' courts, the county courts, the district courts, and then looking to see the cases that have textiles involved and then piecing together how those were handled. And then understanding through like reading hundreds of cases, you finally get a sense of, oh, this is what's going on. Um, And in general, right, the attachment to the clothes is really important. So people will bring in items to show the attachments. Like, um, you accuse me of stealing this sweater, although it probably wouldn't be a sweater, but, you know, this shirt at that time. And so I'm bringing it in to show you it's mine. And I would be thinking, why would you bring in the item that you're accused of stealing? Doesn't that show you actually have it? But the point of bringing it in is saying, no, look, it's actually mine. I have it. It's a legitimate connection here. Then you would bring in witnesses who could... um, actually testify to the point of sale, the time of sale, how much it costs, how much you paid for that shirt. Um, you would want to have that sale in public. And so you, the witnesses can all then come in and testify. They can also testify to you wearing it and in what circumstances you're wearing it, how long you've worn it. Um, so that attachment is something that's really important and very powerful, and people show it in any number of ways. And then if you want to leverage this property, like by loaning it, because you would have a store of textiles in your trunk or um, in your chest or somewhere you know, in your dwelling, 
And if you want to leverage the value of that, you would loan it. And then there's certain rules for loaning as well. So like if you pawn it, you can always go back and get it. So like if I loaned you my shirt and you pawned it, that would be okay because you could always give me the shirt back. But we may have also then agreed to a different kind of loan where you're going to pay me back the amount and not necessarily the shirt uh, set amount. And so in those instances, you know, you might sell the shirt and I wouldn't be upset because you're going to give me back the amount. And it all depends on the nature of the agreement that we made, which would be oral, not written. Um, and so there are all these kinds of rules that people follow. Um, and you can start piecing those together through practice. And we're not used to, I think, thinking of the law in those terms, um, although we still have customs that are enforceable. But in this legal world, those kinds of practices, customary practices, have incredible legal power that I think we've forgotten. And what's interesting here is if you're talking practice, it means that ordinary people also have power over the law that can create, maintain, um, and even define law through their own actions, which I also find really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, on top of all of this, I mean, what what, what seems so fascinating to me, well, among other things that seems so fascinating to me is that, you know, it's one thing for the courts to take this interpretation of law or take this popular culture of law and work with it when we're talking about white women. But we're also, you know, in a, in a world in which slaves don't have rights at all, even slaves are able to uh, – make claims on property through textiles, right? I mean, am I, am I, did I, am I reading that correctly? And, and if, yes. and if so, what, what does that actually say about, um, how does that complicate, I, I guess, narratives about, about slavery in this country? It does complicate it there. I think we have to be careful here because, you know, actually enslaved people could try to do that. They weren't always successful and all of this exists on a scale. So if you're a wealthy white woman and you're in an urban area, you're probably going to be able to sustain claims to your clothing and a range of related goods more easily than if you are enslaved in the South Carolina upcountry, right? Um, it depends. You can try. And I think that's the point, right, is that you can try. People are very aware of these principles and they try really hard to get them recognized. But to me, this also opens up this area of law outside of written law, right? So um, this is not to say that, oh, this makes slavery somehow better or not as horrific. But I think what it does is open up our understanding of a wide range of people's knowledge of the law and their insistence on using it and including themselves within the legal order. And for me, that's the most important thing to understand here is that people weren't just sitting on the outside going, oh, we're excluded. They were like, no, we understand these legal principles and we're going to go use them and try to turn them to our own benefit. And to me, this says a lot about the ways that people understand their connection to the polity, the way that they also are connected into the commercial economy. Um, and I think it says a lot about their savviness and also their expectations of what government should do for them. Um, and it may also then, to me, explain a lot about what happens after emancipation. So, in, you know, this is, people have remarked all the time, but, you know, enslaved people after emancipation, once free, they're insistent on integrating themselves into the economy and into the political system, and they know how to do it. They're actually very savvy about that. So 
the people like books struggle to figure this out. And I've read some books where like you, they're confronted with this dilemma. It's like, how do enslaved people know how to do this? How do they know how to file a legal case? And they'll say things like, oh, the union troops told them how to do it. And I'm like, seriously? Um, and no, in fact, enslaved people have long familiarity with the legal system and real intimate familiarity with uh, legal principles. And I think, you know, understanding that is important. And I don't think you have, you think you can understand that without having to go to, oh, slavery wasn't as bad as we thought it was. And so, yeah, I mean, just to, just to build on this, I have some of the things I want to ask you, but again, I'm so fascinated by this. Um, uh, how do slaves become so acquainted with the details of this law. I mean, we all, you know, I mean, we all know literacy was, extreme, you know, what, 5% or something at most. Um, you know, obviously they are subject to their own, you know, legal trepidations and, and, and such because of the, uh, the internal slave trade. But um, like, do you, can, can you get a sense of, of the ways in which uh, slaves w- w- would be able to, enter into this legal culture, like, like, as you point out, and I think that's absolutely correct. Like when we get to the post-Civil War period, the, uh, you know, uh, certainly in Reconstruction, the ability to negotiate uh, the legal and political frameworks, uh, you know, that exist are, are really remarkable um, and perhaps surprising to some people. How are they able to, given literacy rates and, and all the oppression, how are they able to, to um, embrace or understand that legal culture so effectively? Yeah, um, you know, this also kind of made me, doing this book made me think differently about where the law resides, right? And so I keep coming back to practice. And so it's not a matter of literacy or books, right? Because you can't read a book and find out this stuff. Um, You have to live in the world. And so if you are living in the world in the early republic, you're going to be living these legal principles. And they're going to be familiar to a range of people. What struck me as really challenging in the way I thought about this book was the way that regions are not particularly important. I started this out as a Southern history book because I was a Southern historian. I'm like, okay, the South is usually different. So we're just going to do the South. But then it became clear that these kinds of legal principles were recognized up and down the East Coast, that it didn't matter North, South. It actually doesn't matter rural, rural, urban either. So in New York City, rural North Carolina, same principles. Um, They're going to, the outcomes might be different, but they're following pretty much the same thing. This kind of consistency is really rare in this period. But I think it's because of practice and a practice that is rooted in the global textile trade reaches back centuries. It also spans the entire globe, hence the global textile trade. So all of those practices were you know, they extended to Africa, they extended to the Middle East, they extended across Europe. So these are things that a wide range of people were already familiar with before they come to North America. And they're also the kind of principles that move across state boundaries, national boundaries, um, you know, big geographic boundaries. So they're already familiar to people. And then they're practiced again in North America. So if you're German and you plop down in New York City, this is something you understand. Just as if you are from the West Coast of Africa, 
and you're plopped down in South Carolina, this kind of practice is going to be more familiar to you too, because traders in Africa were also following some of the similar kinds of assumptions and principles about textiles and using textiles as currency. And also with women making claims to textiles, women are traders in the textile um, trade uh, across the all of these different continents and spaces. So some of this is very familiar, um, and it is rooted in things other than state laws, again. So state laws, you have to like read about them. But this sort of thing you, you experience in your daily life, and you acquire that knowledge by watching and growing up and moving through the world and understanding those rules. And we're not used to, I think, thinking about law in those terms, right, as so physically part of your life, the material qualities of your life. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I mean, I think, you know, on top of that, and maybe, I mean, this is a big question, maybe it's a step out a little, a step back a little bit, but I, I think that at least sometimes I think in the, in the kind of standard teaching of American history, um, attention to textiles doesn't really happen, I think, in, in mainstream narratives until the cotton gin, right? And the growth of industrialization and the impact of that on slavery. But as you, of course, correctly point out, you know, not only is cotton it, it itself have a long history before the, 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 the cotton gin and a global history, but, you know, that Colonial U.S. the colonial America is deeply immersed in the in the, a global textile trade, and I guess can you you know quickly kind of summarize the the criticality of textiles to America's relationship with the rest of the world before the cotton gin, right? Before the revolution. Yeah. Um, well, you know, like America was North America is a place where you can sell textiles. And so it gets integrated into the global textile trade from the very outset. And most of the textiles in colonial North America, actually colonial South America too, are imports. And so, you know, we have this vision of all of these sturdy little yeoman households in North America where the women are weaving and spinning and actually not in that order, spinning and weaving and then making clothes out of homespun. It's like, no, 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 no. All of this was imported. It's cheaper to import cloth at that point. And so, you know, part of understanding the global textile trade is also understanding that, um, it becomes commercialized and wide scale before industrialization. And they do this by scaling up, by hiring more and more people to do more and more of the production. So textiles are handmade, although with some kinds of mechanized assist, like a spinning wheel, we're talking, um, and, you know, looms get better. But it's hand done, but those people are also already proletarianized before you have mechanization that is happening through um, energy other than hand labor, right? So, um, you know, you have weavers who are already being displaced or being proletarianized who are fleeing to North America to buy land um, because they don't want to be weavers anymore long before Lowell Mills opens up. And women are also really key in um, all of the textile manufacture. And for me, this was fascinating. You know, he was a labor historian. My, you know, this this is the piece that it's the labor history piece. It's like people can create value, right, by making textiles or adding value to them. So making cloth is like 
making money because you can use textiles as currency. Um, you can then take cloth and turn it into something more valuable by making it into clothing. And you can rehab clothing, and that's making money too. When you wash clothing, you are actually, you know, doing some money laundering there. There are all of these, you know, monetary terms that overlap with the terms of deeply embedded into this economy, not just as consumable items, but as the means of exchange. Um, so they hold their value um, more than some like paper currencies and even some hard currencies um, that are metals because you know you can see it and you can evaluate it right in front of you. And so textiles had long served as currency within the global textile trade. Um, so they're the item and the means of exchange. And people continue to do that in the late 18th and early 19th century as well. So it was a long answer to your question, but not only is like colonial North America integrated into the textile trade early on and very much a part of that, um, but they're also integrated in, in the sense that they're using textiles in the way that they are handled in textile trade as objects and the means of exchange. And they work very well as currency because, as I discovered, this is a world without much stable currency. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in the time we have left, I guess I want to kind of um, talk about the the, the 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 change over time here and the uh, the central role of, of is, is I believe you are of federalism as kind of beginning to unravel this uh, this legal world. And you know, you have uh, one of my one of my favorite. Uh, Chapter titles here, uh, Roger Tawney's Long Underwear, which I, I thought it might be sexy time with Roger Tawney, which was going to be uh, uh, something, but but it really is about federalism. And so um, I'm wondering if you could talk about federalism and then we could kind of move into, you know, what happens to Mary Todd Lincoln, um, you know, as, 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 you know, the way in this, this world declines. Yeah, I, the book ends up being about it's about law. It's also like there's a whole that whole chapter in Roger Tani is about the federal system. And, you know, I am into the institutional piece of this because you have to understand how the institutions operate to understand how textiles can work legally. And, you know, in the period following the revolution, federalism is really complicated. And most legal scholars, most historians think of federalism in terms of the relationship between states and the federal government. But actually, states and the federal government. Um, that's only the beginning of the complications. You have counties, you have like the laws, the legal principles that, that, that are dealing with textiles that kind of throw through all of these different jurisdictions. You have different bodies of law. Um, you have states don't necessarily have a monopoly on law. So like states will issue statutes and then local areas are like, well, that's cute, but we're not going to apply that here because it doesn't work for us, um, which is utterly consistent with the way that, you know, counties had discretion over a wide range of issues. So there's a real inconsistency from place to place and a real kind of competing jurisdictional situation in the early republic, which means that if you go from place to place, your legal status might change. And I think the best example of this is enslaved people, where the presumption in some places are is that if you are of African descent, you are enslaved. And then the presumption in other places is that you're free. Um, so moving around through all of this sort of multiple jurisdictions and bodies of law in the United States is really difficult. And textiles kind of flourish in that environment, that institutional environment, because 
people can take these principles that aren't written down or sanctioned by states, and they can make them enforceable, particularly in local jurisdictions. They're also actually enforceable in federal jurisdictions, hence the Roger Tarney Long Underwear case, um, which we can come back to. I love that case. Um, But over time, the institutional structure changes of federalism. And uh, increasingly, states, the federal government, and also legal professionals start elevating universal standards, most of which are revolving around a rights-based rubric that allow people to, like, it's portable. You can take rights across all of these jurisdictions, and they're consistent across all of these jurisdictions. And as that sort of framework gets elevated up, then the other frameworks like textiles and the legal principles associated with them start sort of getting pushed down and start falling off people's sense of what is actually enforceable law. So by the time you hit the 1850s and 60s, and then once you get Reconstruction and you get the Reconstruction Amendments, it's really validate and elevate a rights-based framework, textiles get harder and harder to enforce. And over time, they're seen less and less as legal principles and more and more sort of cultural values. So the idea that your clothes belong to you is a cultural statement but it's not legally enforceable in quite the way that it used to be. Um, So it begins to sort of fall off the legal radar screen. And when it becomes less enforceable, then a lot of the other pieces of textiles fall away because if it's not legally enforceable, it's more difficult for you to use as currency. It's more difficult to kind of amass large stores of textiles and use that as capital. You need a whole lot of it um, later on too. Um, So all of that begins to decline. And at the same time, some of the people who relied on textiles the most, like married women, um, enslaved people who are no longer enslaved, but whose rights are not fully protected, even when they're free, they are left without textiles, but without also the full range of rights either. So they're in kind of a legal limbo in a rights-based world where they don't have rights, but one that no longer recognizes some of the things that they used to use, like the legal principles of textiles, to mediate and moderate the absence of rights. Yeah. Well, I guess the the there's so much we could ask, but um, to close this, because I know you're busy and I need to let you go, but to close this, you know, can you talk about the sort of the kind of sad story, really, um, about what happens to Mary Todd Lincoln when she tries to engage in a you know, as you have pointed out, a very traditional, normal uh, activity of selling clothing to raise capital. And the response to this is definitely not what she was hoping. No, Mary Todd Lincoln, once I discovered that after her husband was shot, he died in testate, which tied up all of his estate for years. Um, and, you know, his estate was not sufficiently large anyway. But she, as First Lady, had amassed this huge store of clothes, which is not unusual for wealthy white women, actually for anybody. Um, Women would put what value and resources they had into clothing because they could keep that. I mean, it makes perfect sense. They were ridiculed all the time for, oh, you're just being silly and superficial, buying clothes. Wherever you get any money, just go out and buy clothes. But they're actually doing that because that's the resource they can keep. So if you have money, you don't want to like keep it because it belongs to your husband. You put it in clothing and then you can keep it. So she had done that and had a very valuable store of clothing. And she's waiting for her husband's estate to be settled. She has no money. Um, 
she is not always a sympathetic figure. So she was whining and moaning and trying to get people's attention and whatnot. And they weren't paying any attention. So she finally decides she's going to sell her clothes. And then she wants a lot of money for her clothes. And so she goes to basically a kind of a publicist in New York. And he says, oh, we'll do this big kind of sale and we'll show it publicly. And then, you know, people can come in and buy it. And it had a circus-like atmosphere, which was probably not in the best taste, right? Um, and so she opens up this big, you know, exhibit of her clothes and people march through. And then it just all collapses because they're saying, ew, look, she has terrible taste. And oh my gosh, I can see sweat stains. And oh, this is terrible. And there's, I was shocked because like now you can go in newspapers.com and you type in like Mary Todd Lincoln, a few key words, clothing, and there were articles all over the United States in Utah, for God's sakes. Um, they're busily ridiculing Mary Todd Lincoln for selling her clothes. Um, you know, all of these like obscure newspapers have rerunning stories of this that are based on, you know, some of the New York dailies. Um, coverage of this. So she's ridiculed far and wide, but this is seen as really beyond the pale because she's selling herself. So this idea that, oh, you have clothes and they're yours and you can alienate them and make money off of them becomes, oh, this is really unseemly because you're so desperate that you're selling yourself. Um, and this completely falls apart for her ultimately. And I think says a lot about like where ultimately this is going, that clothing becomes so personal that it's simply yours. And so like, if you're pawning your clothes, it's not a good business deal. It's desperation on your part. It's something really pathetic that you've reached so low in your life that you have to actually pawn your own clothing. Um, whereas, you know, earlier, this is just ordinary business practice. You, of course, you have clothes and you'll leverage them and you bring them down to the pawn shop because why would you leave something valuable just sitting around when you could make some money off of it? So, yes, Mary Todd Lincoln then becomes really the symbol of what happens. But I think in here is also something even sadder, which is about her stylist, um, Elizabeth Keckley, who made all of her clothing and actually made a lot of the clothing for many of the Washington wives in D.C. And her clothes are what's being ridiculed. And she lost her business after this because she, her creations, what she had made um, was seen as so problematic that she could never then regain the incredible business that she once had. Which I think also speaks to the larger tragedy here of the ability of marginalized people to create value with their own hands. And Elizabeth Keckley lost that. And I think a lot of people started losing that in the late 19th century, the ability to use this kind of market, to use the legal principles of clothing to actually create value, meaning, beauty in their life, but to also transform their life into something better. Yeah, I mean, it's this really powerful story. Um, and I, I guess as a, as a final question, I would that previous one was going to be a final question, but let me just really quickly, like, is there, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, an, an early American story, you know, ending in the late 1860s, I guess, early 1870s. And um, but is there, like a, you know, you're talking about these profound issues around the ability of marginalized people to engage in, in a legal culture or in an economy, the ways in which these things decline, et cetera. Is there 
a, a sort of a takeaway for understanding our contemporary world, perhaps, uh, whether it's about the law or it's about the value of clothing or whatever. Is, is there like a, a takeaway that we that you would like to offer that can help us as listeners and readers of your book think through some contemporary issues? That's a good question. And I can go in any number of directions on that. Um, first of all, I mean, one of the things that I found so compelling about these people in this book, I mean, I find the characters that I came across just kind of amazing because of their belief in the larger culture, the, the government that they were under, the political order that they were part of, and the culture that they were a part of. And they really worked to create beauty in their lives. It really mattered to them. Like The thing that they could do was their clothing, and they worked really hard to make that meaningful, to look good, to express themselves. And they found that empowering. And I found that amazing that all these people that we imagine now as being just exploited and put upon put that much energy into beauty in their lives. And I found that really compelling. Um, to me, it made me look at the aesthetics of the world differently. It made them more fully human, but it also made them more colorful people. So I think colorful, literally people. So that was important, but the beauty part, and I think the appreciation of that is, is key to this book, but it also is about the meaning that they made, right? That the past is often seen as this place where all these people were exploited. They had no legal agency. And this then becomes the basis for building out narratives about progress over time. And I think that we need to question some of those narratives of progress that are based on this presumption of this bleak past in which nobody had any legal agency or any connection to the economy and politics. And all of these people are trying very desperately to do that and trying to create something that was meaningful in their world and to change their world. And to me, that's really also empowering today. And it may also cause us to question the narrative that is based on, you know, the extension of rights to more and more people. This will solve everything. When in fact, I don't know that that solved everything or will solve everything, that these are much more entrenched, complicated questions when you realize that actually inclusion it was not exclusion going to inclusion, but there were people who were including themselves and then were excluded and then were included again. It's a much more complicated story there. It may cause us to think critically about how we might resolve some of the inequalities today. Well, that's a, an outstanding answer, and I guess we'll leave it there. Um, Laura, I want to thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. This is great fun. Thanks for having me. You bet. And uh, once again, we've been uh, talking to Laura Edwards of Princeton uh, about uh, her new book, or almost new book, uh, Only the Clothes on Her Back, uh, Clothing and the Hidden History of Power in the 19th Century United States. I think when I introduced it, I was using the original, uh, like, pre-title title, but that's the actual title. But anyway, check it out. It's a great book. Um, I hope that you all enjoy this conversation. And we'll be back soon with another Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. We would like to thank Elizabeth Nelson of The Paranoid Style for supplying, as our intro and outro music, I'd Bet My Lands and Titles, a track on the album For Executive Meeting. If you would like to support the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast or any other aspect of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money project, 
please visit us at www.patreon.com slash lawyers, guns, and money, or donate at the PayPal link on the website. Thank you. Thank you.